but as I was preparing this message, I couldn't think of a better way to start the question, do you know Him? A lot of people have images of Christ in their mind and pictures of Jesus, but if all you see when you think of Christ is a baby in His mother's arms, that's not the whole story. If all you think about when you think of Jesus is a Savior on the cross, He's not on the cross. If all you think about is a dead person in a tomb, the tomb is empty. Jesus reigns. We're starting a series this summer from the book of Hebrews. Hebrews is an interesting book. It's a book written by an author that is hard to, to determine. A lot of people will tell you, well, Paul wrote the book of Hebrews. But there's no indication that Paul wrote the book of Hebrews. It's interesting. Every other book in the New Testament, we can tell you John wrote it, or Paul wrote it, or Peter wrote it, or Matthew, Mark, Luke wrote it. But this book does not identify that. Some Bibles will have the letter of the Hebrew or the letter from the Apostle Paul to the Hebrews. Uh, that wasn't in there originally. Somebody added that. So we don't know who wrote it, but we know who he wrote it to. He wrote it to believers. In fact, specifically to Jewish believers, probably in Rome. Not exactly sure because it doesn't tell us the location where the letter went to, but probably in Rome. Imagine that. You're a Jewish believer in Rome probably never saw Jesus in the flesh. You've only heard about the witness of Christ that has come to your town. And now you're a Jew in Rome. And not just a Jew. You're a Jew who has been fulfilled as a Jew. And you're now a believer in Jesus Christ. Imagine the persecution that they went through. They went through persecutions from the Jews because they become Christians. They're going through persecutions from the Romans because they are believers. In fact, later in the book of Hebrews, you'll see that the writer of Hebrews encourages them, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together as is the habit of some. Why would they forsake the assembling of themselves together? Listen, you and I struggle waking up on Sunday morning and it's raining coming to church. What would it be like if you knew your life might be in danger from coming to church? The people this letter is addressed to were losing their lives. They were losing their freedom. They were being beaten for the cause of Christ. And yet, here's the word to them in the book of Hebrews. Let me begin by reading just the first four verses of this first chapter. God, after He spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, through whom also He made the world. And He is the radiance of the glory and the exact representation of His nature, and upholds all things by the word of His power. When He had made purification of sins, He sat down at the right hand of the Majesty on high, having become as much better than the angels, and has inherited a more excellent name than they. First, I want you to see that God has spoken. How has God spoken? In the Old Testament, God spoke in various ways. God spoke through vision. He spoke through angelic revelations. He spoke through prophetic words. He spoke through events. He even speaks through His creation. He has spoken. In fact, it's enough what He's already said. If all we had was the Old Testament and His creation to bear witness of the glory of Christ and the glory of God, it's enough. And yet He didn't stop speaking there. The Old Testament was a promise. The New Testament is its fulfillment. He says He's spoken in the ages long ago 
But in these last days, in the Christian era, who has he spoken through? He's spoken through Jesus Christ. It wasn't enough that God sent a messenger. It wasn't enough that he sent a message through a vision or through a dream or through a prophet who spoke about God. What did God do? He took on flesh. He came to be born as one of us. In fact, very humble beginning. And lived around 33 years on earth to tell the story of the goodness of God and the salvation that He offers. In these last days, He's spoken to us through His Son. How did He speak? In, in, in Psalms 19, it says this, The heavens are telling the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the work of His hand. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words. Their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth, and their utterances to the end of the world. In them, He has placed a tent for the sun. David, in, in the Psalms, has written about the God of creation. We can know Him even through His marvelous works. In Romans, Paul says it this way, That which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power, and His divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. Listen, if all we had was the Old Testament, it would be enough. If all we had was to walk out at night and look up into the expanse of heaven that is still expanding and recognize there's a Creator. It didn't just happen by accident. There's a Creator. There's a designer that put all of this here. And we would worship the Creator rather than the creation. But the good news is this. In these last days, God has continued to speak. And how did He do it? He did it through His Son. He continues to speak through the pages of Scripture that God has given to us. We know the Father because we've known and seen the Son. God has spoken. But God has not only just spoken, but I want you to see Jesus, how He is described. What an awesome description of the Savior, really in the rest of this chapter, but specifically these next two verses. He's the radiance of His glory. What does that mean? Listen, Jesus is not just a reflection of the glory of God. He's the radiance of His glory. Literally, the brightness of God's glory shines through everything that's viewed. The brightness of Christ when He was risen from the dead displayed the glory of God. doesn't reflect. He radiates. And then listen to this. He's the exact representation of His nature. Now, keep in mind, who's the writer writing to? He's writing to Jews, Jewish Christians, but also Jews who've not yet made that conversion over to Christianity. And so when the writer of Hebrews says He is the exact representation of God's nature, to a Jew who wasn't a believer, that's blasphemy. And yet, that's who Jesus is. He is God. The exact representation of His nature. In other words, when you see Jesus, you've seen the Father. Now, I don't know how many of you have children and you look at your children and you think, well, they look a little like their mother, look a little bit like their father. I remember picking our kids up from the nursery one time and the nursery worker said, well, he can tell, we can tell he's your son. And I thought about that. I mean, are they bragging or complaining? What has he done? Because <laughs> it scared me a little bit. And yes, if you look at my four children, there'll be certain things about me. There'll be certain things about their mother that you will see in them, the way they 
talk, the way they may walk, some of their behavior, maybe even some of their attitude about things. But let me tell you, they're not an exact replica. They're not an exact representation. But that's who Jesus was. He wasn't just a close image. The writer of Hebrews is saying he's the exact representation of the nature of God. Look at the third thing he says about him. He upholds all things. How? By the word of his power. Again, if you're struggling with the fact that Jesus is God, if you've received this letter, this is going to grate under your skin until you come to grips with the fact that what the writer of Hebrews is saying is, we're talking about God here, and we're talking about the way that God has spoken. He's spoken in these last days through Jesus Christ, His Son. The fourth thing it says about Him in this passage is, He made purification. What does that mean? It means a washing off or a ceremonial cleaning, but it means more than that. When Jesus Christ died on the cross, He did something. He defeated death, yes, by rising from the dead. But folks, we got to get it this morning. When Jesus Christ died on the cross, He paid the penalty for my sin and your sin. Jesus did not deserve to die. Pilate Himself, I find no fault in this man. What was Jesus guilty of? He was guilty of nothing. He irritated the religious people because He claimed to be God. But there was no sin in Him. Jesus took a man's place on the cross by the name of Barabbas. Remember, Pilate came out and said, I find no fault in this man. And as is our custom during the Passover, I will release a prisoner to you. Do you want me to release Barabbas? I think Pilate went and found the most heinous criminal he could find, Barabbas. A man that everybody would agree, this man deserves to die. Do you want me to let go Barabbas in whom there is incredible guilt? Or do you want me to let go, Jesus, in whom I find no fault? I think Pilate thought, here's my way out. (laughs) I'll give them a choice. They can't possibly refuse Jesus. And what does the crowd cry out? Barabbas. You know what the word Barabbas means? Two words. It means, it's the word bar, which means son, and Abba, which means father. The name simply means son of a father. So, folks, what we see happen at the time of Christ's death, he took the place of Barabbas. We never hear from him again. I don't know if Barabbas became a believer or he just hit the road and continued his life of crime. I'm not sure. But we're all Barabbas. We're all sons or daughters of a father. And by faith in Jesus Christ, he's taken my place on the cross. He's made purification for sin, something you and I couldn't do. No matter how much scrubbing we do, no matter how many baths you take, you can't cleanse yourself. Before Christ, it's all filthy. But through Christ, we stand with the righteousness of Christ. That's grace. Jesus made purification for sin, and then what did He do? I love this. He sat down. One thing the priests never did. The whole history of the Jewish faith was on a day called Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. What did the priest do? He went and offered sacrifice for the sin of all the people. But he also had to offer sacrifice for himself. And one of the things he would do, he'd go behind the veil into the Holy of Holies. They would have uh, bells attached to the bottom of his robe so they could hear him moving around in there. Because if he approached the throne of God in an unworthy fashion, he'd die. 
So they had bells so the people outside could know, well, he's still alive. <laughs> but you know one thing there was not behind that veil in the Holy of Holies? wasn't a place for him to sit down. Why? Because his job was never finished. Every year, year after year, into the Holy of Holies, to offer sacrifice for the sin, which was what God told them to do, but it was painting a picture of what was going to ultimately happen. That lamb that you've killed this year, I'm sending a lamb that's perfect. As spotless as you think that one is, I'm sending one that is spotless and perfect to pay the penalty, to make purification. And then he sat down. Where? At the right hand of majesty, the seat of power, beside God the Father. One time that we see Jesus stand, you know where it is in Scripture? In the book of Acts, when Stephen is being stoned to death for his faith, it says that he looks up into heaven and he sees Christ standing at the right hand of the Father. What made Jesus get up off of his seat and stand? Folks, I think it is because he noticed what was going on in Stephen. And he stood up to welcome him into heaven. But Jesus has sat down. Why? Because he's finished. The work is done. But he's coming again. Having become much better than the angels. Reading that, you think, okay, at one point he wasn't better than the angels. And because of what he did on the cross, he's now somehow become better than the angels. That's not what the word literally means. It literally means to cause to be. Jesus has always been better than the angels. Jesus is eternal. Angels are not. We're going to talk about angels a little bit in my third point. But Jesus has always been better than the angels. There's 108 direct references to angels in the Old Testament. 165 direct references to angels in the New Testament. Their primary purpose is to render worship and service to God. Now, they have other functions we're going to talk about in a minute. But Jesus far is far superior to the angels. In fact, that's my whole third point. Comparing and contrasting Christ to the angels. But look at the last thing it says in verse 4. He has inherited a more excellent name than they. Jesus has a birthright. He's the only begotten Son of God. He's inherited a more excellent name. In fact, Philippians 2 puts it this way. He's been given a name that is above every other name. That at that name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess what? That Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Whose knees will bow that day? Everyone's. Including the angels will have to bow before Jesus. Including those angels that fell from heaven, the demons, Satan himself will have to bow. And you know what they'll have to acknowledge? He is Lord. We do that willingly today because we're celebrating a risen Savior. He's Lord. He's King of kings and He's Lord of lords. That's Jesus described. In fact, Going along with what this pastor shared with us from the video, I read this this week. Someone has said that Jesus Christ came from the bosom of the Father to the bosom of a woman. He put on humanity that we might put on divinity. He became Son of Man that we might become sons of God. He was born contrary to the laws of nature, lived in poverty, was reared in obscurity, and only once crossed the boundary of the land in which he was born, and that in his childhood. He had no wealth or influence and had neither training nor education in the world schools. His relatives were inconspicuous and uninfluential. In infancy, he startled a king. In boyhood, he puzzled the learned doctors. In manhood, he ruled the course of nature. He walked upon the billows and hushed the sea to sleep. 
He healed the multitudes without medicine and made no charge for his services. He never wrote a book, and yet all the libraries of the world cannot hold the books about him. He never wrote a song, yet he was furnished a theme, he has furnished a theme for more songs than all songwriters together. He never founded a college, yet all the schools together could not boast of as many students as he had. He never practiced medicine, and yet he has healed more broken hearts than all the doctors have healed broken bodies. This Jesus Christ is the star of astronomy, the rock of geology, the lion and the lamb of zoology, the harmonizer of all discords, and the healer of all diseases. Throughout history, great men have come and gone, yet he lives on. Herod could not kill him. Satan could not seduce him. Death could not destroy him. And the grave could not hold him. That's Jesus. Not only have we seen him described at last, let's see him compared. In fact, I like the word contrasted a little better here. The rest of the chapter, here's what the writer of Hebrews does. He quotes Old Testament Scripture. What's he doing? He's saying to that Jew that's wavering in his faith, or he's saying to that Jew that hasn't come to faith yet, I'm using the pages of the Old Testament, all of the prophecies, over 300 of them, prophesying about a coming Savior. That's who Jesus is. So rather than just using a contemporary argument, the author of Hebrews sends a letter to the Jewish believers and even Jewish non-believers in Rome. And says this, first, which of the angels has, has God ever said, I've begotten to you. I'm the Father and you're the Son. First thing we know about Jesus in contrasting to the angels is He is a Son. The Son of God. He's not an angel. He's not a created being. He is eternal. John chapter 1 says, In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. You go back to Genesis 1 and you see Jesus there. He was Lord at creation. So the first thing He says about Him is He's the Son. Then look at this. If you want to compare him to an angel, the second thing he says about him is all the angels worship him. It's that word that I've used here before. It's the Greek word proskuneo. It means to kiss toward. That's what the word worship means. The angels at this moment are around the throne worshiping. We studied Revelation last year. Look at Revelation chapter 4 and 5. And you see angelic beings around the throne. And they never stop saying, holy, holy, holy. The angels worship Him. The throne of Jesus is forever. Your throne, O God, is forever. It's interesting in this passage that any time Jesus' incarnation is being described, He's called a Son. But any time His eternity is described, or His throne is described, or His scepter is described, He's called God. Which is He? Both. <laughs> when Jesus came to earth, He was fully God, but He was also fully man on earth. He humbled Himself. Became obedient to the Father, even to the point of death. Your throne is forever. Your righteous scepter is forever. You loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Look at the next thing. He has anointed you. Who? The Father has anointed you with the oil of gladness. All things that are describing His relationship with the Father. This isn't something God has done with angels. You were Lord in the beginning. You laid the foundation of the earth. He's the Lord of creation. John 1, Genesis 1. The heavens are the work of your hands. Then listen to this. They will all perish. But you remain. Literally, 
you will stay constant. In fact, the word perish is the same word that's used in John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whosoever believed in him would not perish. The word means to be utterly destroyed. Listen, everything that you see on earth will one day be utterly destroyed. In fact, Paul puts it this way in his writings. It will melt with intense heat. Why is that? It's because God's preparing a new heaven and a new earth for those who are his children. Jesus told his disciples, I go away and I prepare a place for you. So where I am, you may be. And I'm coming back to get you. Thomas, of course, says, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How do we know the way? Jesus says, you know me. I'm the way. I'm the truth. I'm the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And I love the description that he uses of how Jesus will remain. All of this other stuff will perish. He says, like a mantle, like you've taken off an outer garment and rolled it up and thrown it away. That's what's going to happen to the heavens someday. But you're the same. Jesus never changes. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Years will come to an end, but Jesus will not. God the Father said to him, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. We don't see that lived out in our world much anymore, but in, in, in the ancient world, in the world even today of the Middle East, when a king had conquered a foe, the foe would be made to come in and kiss the feet of the king. And the king would place his foot on the neck of the conquered. It was, it was the greatest symbol of humility and the greatest symbol of power and authority that I have conquered you. And what does the Father say to Jesus? There's coming a day. When all those that were hostile to you will have to kiss your feet, worship you, and you will use them as a footstool. Again, hearkening back even today in the Middle East to that. And then the last verse, verse 14. Speaking of the angels, are they not all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? Let me say this in closing about angels. Jesus is compared and contrasted to the angels. A lot written about angels in the Old Testament, New Testament. A lot even today in movies about angels. A lot of folks are fascinated with angels. Just, just a couple of things that disturb me a little bit in the church. I think there's some people that believe that when we die, we're going to go to heaven and be angels. It doesn't work that way. That's not biblical. And that's really good news for us. <laughs> the angels have all been created. How many of them were there? The Bible says there were thousands of thousands and myriads of myriads. There are millions of angels, if not billions of angels. But they were all created at one time. They're not procreating. They're not recreating. They've all been created. We see a scene in heaven where a third of them revolt against God and they're cast out of heaven. We call those demons. So when you go to heaven, you don't get a halo, a harp, and, a, and some wings. Does that disappoint you? <laughs> it shouldn't. All right. I think some people think in heaven we're just going to sit on a cloud and strum a heart. Let me tell you something. That's your view of heaven. It's way better than that. It's way better than that. In fact, if you've got your Bibles, look at 1 Peter. Just flip over a few pages after Hebrews to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 12. First Peter chapter 1, verse 12. Speaking of the prophets here, he says, It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you in these things which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. The angels in heaven 
long to look into the things that are ours by inheritance. We talked about Jesus inheriting this place from God. But do you know what? As a child of God, I'm now a joint heir with Christ. In fact, in God's view, I'm already seated there in heavenly places. Why? Because my eternity has been sealed through Jesus Christ. So Jesus is not just better than the angels. Jesus is better than any other created thing. That includes me and you, anything in the world, and certainly angels. Now, it's good to know that God has created angels. Their primary function, I believe, is to worship and serve God. But they're also sent to serve us. Not to worship us, but to serve us. That's good news. That's the function of the angels. We're not going to become one of them. What are we? We're saints. The picture in heaven is us joining in in Revelation chapter 5 when the church worships around the throne of God saying along with the angels, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. So when we come to Easter, we come to a service where we Honor a risen Savior. I just want you to know who that risen Savior is. His name is Jesus. He's not in the tomb. In the Holy Land today, there's two places they think may be the tomb of Christ. I've been to both of them. And I'm here to report they're both empty. (laughs) Jesus is not there. We don't go to a grave marker to worship a Savior. What do we do? We come to a place like this and say, Jesus is alive. And we know the rest of the story. He's coming again. Let's pray together. Bow your heads with me. Father, what an awesome thought that we serve a risen Savior. And yes, as the song says, He's in the world today. He walks with me. He talks with me. He indwells me. It's all about Jesus. There's none like Him. He is absolutely, utterly unique. He's absolutely and utterly powerful. It is because He is Lord. And so we worship Him today. God, impact our lives with that thought. And God, I pray that what we learn today would impact the way we live our lives tomorrow and the next day. Thank You for a majesty, the majesty of Christ, who we worship. Please stand with me.